0: All right, all right, all right. That's the foghorn, and you know what that means. It is time for the Calvary Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavis.
1: And I'm Chris Cervella. This week, we talk with recently retired Navy Captain Jason Salada about NATO's maritime structure, how nations work together, and the alliance's handling of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Additionally, we pay tribute to friend and colleague Raymond Pritchett. But first, a look at this week's Naval News.
0: The U.S. cruiser Chancellorsville carried out a freedom of navigation passage near the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea November 29th, drawing immediate condemnation from China, who posted images on the Internet of the U.S. ship as seen from a shadowing Chinese frigate, the Yang Yang. In a statement, Chinese said it has, quote, indisputable sovereignty over the islands. The U.S. 7th Fleet responding to those claims said that Chinese statements about the cruiser's mission were false and that the moves were consistent with international law. The movements by the Chancellorsville broke a four-month U.S. pause in such freedom of navigation passages, the last having been in mid-July.
1: The Pentagon, on November 29th, released its annual report on Chinese military power. The report noted the Chinese Navy now numbers about 340 ships and is expected to grow to more than 400 ships by 2025, largely due to the introduction into service of more major surface combat ships. By comparison, the US fleet remains at about 292 ships. The carrier USS Nimitz left her home port of Bremerton, Washington, on December 1st to begin a Western Pacific deployment with carrier Air Wing 17. The oldest U.S. aircraft carrier will be accompanied in the air defense commander role by USS Bunker Hill, herself the oldest cruiser in service.
0: A minor fire broke out aboard the carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, November 30th shortly after the ship got underway from San Diego for training. Nine sailors suffered minor injuries, according to the Navy, and the Lincoln did not return immediately to port. The assault ship USS Tripoli returned to San Diego November 29th after a nearly seven-month independent deployment to the Western Pacific. The cruise, the first for the ship, was a test of what's been dubbed the lightning carrier concept, where, after arriving in Japan in late May, the ship embarked about two dozen, F-35B Lightning Joint Strike Fighters of Marine Strike Fighter Squadron 121, based in Japan. AAA carried out numerous exercises and activities in the Western Pacific and the South China Sea before returning to base. The website Naval News, citing a French Ministry of Defense briefing,
1: reported December 1st that the French carrier Charles de Gaulle is to deploy to the Indian Ocean during the first quarter of 2023. The de Gaulle carried out a similar deployment during 2021. The de Gaulle currently is operating in the eastern Mediterranean with an international task group.
0: And Huntington Ingalls Industries delivered the new destroyer Lena Sutcliffe-Higby to the U.S. Navy on November 30th. The ship is the 34th Arleigh Burke-class destroyer built at Ingalls Shipbuilding in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and the final Flight 2A variant from Ingalls, which now is concentrating its destroyer production on the new and enlarged Flight 3 variant. With the Higbee's delivery, there are now 73 Burke-class Aegis destroyers in the U.S. Navy. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news.
1: It is time for the discussion portion of our show, and we are very happy to be joined by Captain Retired. uh, At the time of the taping, it's one day retired. Captain Retired Jason Salata, Uh, Longtime friend of the pod and personal friend of Chris and I. Um, Jason has agreed to join us to help us kind of walk through uh, a discussion of NATO and European maritime issues. Chris and I were talking before the podcast about how we would um, how we couch this, how we ex- how we would explain it. And I think the best way, you know, to kind of set this up is since we began almost a year ago, focusing on Ukraine and Russia and the potential conflict, and now the uh, the ongoing conflict, we've talked a lot about um, NATO and the maritime forces and the role that they play in the Mediterranean, in the Um, in the Black Sea, in and around um, Europe. Um, And so Jason has agreed to come on and talk about that. Um, and he he's going to start uh, first talking a little bit about the command and control. If you remember when Chris and I started this discussion, we did our best to kind of explain how you go from a host nation um, operated force to a NATO operated force. Jason's going to take us through that, and then we're going to dive into some of the exercises that um, NATO has conducted over the last year, and then talk a little bit about some of the capacity that each of the countries bring to the overall NATO force. So that's a little bit of a long introduction. But Jason, thank you very much. First off, actually, congratulations on your retirement. And uh, thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thanks, Chris. And Chris, I'm, um, I am truly a longtime listener, first time caller, and uh, really adore what you guys do with your pod. And I'm very happy to be here. Um, I also have to say, between the two of you, I owe a lot to you in my Navy career, so don't feel like you you get to, to just throw the accolades upon me. Um, I certainly learned a lot um, from Chris Gavis and from Chris Turville in my time in uniform, and I and I continue to learn more every day.
0: Oh gosh!
1: So, <laughs> so, uh, so, so actually, be, before you before you jump in, uh, Chris reminded me, and th- this is important: your last job was at JFC Naples. Um, First, talk about that job and then let's jump into, um, you you know, an explanation of, you know, how the NATO uh, forces work together and the back and forth between host nation and, and NATO authority.
2: You guys do a really good job every week updating us on where the ships are and what they're doing, especially in the European waters. What I'd like to do just real quick before we get into that is zoom back a little bit and open the scope to hopefully bring a little more context to day-to-day NATO maritime ops. So for most of my life, when anyone said NATO, my mental image went to the heart of Europe, right? In that Cold War, fold the gap mindset, right? After working in NATO, what I try to encourage people is when they're thinking about the alliance is to center their mental map in the middle, dead center of the Atlantic, and then stretch that image from the Pacific across North America, US, Canada, over the Atlantic, the high North, Baltics, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, into the med black sea and turkey i mean that's nato and so when we think about nato we've got to keep that image um obviously we've been focused very specifically on the southeastern flank of nato in the maritime theater but that that's always when i try and um big picture things i like to i like to keep the scope broad um that geography has a lot to do with nato's command and control and as you know there's Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, Sakir. He's the strategic military leader of NATO in uh, Mons, Belgium. He exercises command and control through three operational joint force command headquarters, or JFCs. So for years, the JFC operating areas are, have been split. Basically, they take Europe, cut a line down the middle of Europe, east to west, and the north. That's taken care of by a four-star operational commander in. Brunson Netherlands, he's focused on kind of that traditional land-centric defense of Europe, Eastern Front, Scandinavia, and like the Baltic States area. In the South, you have JFC Naples, uh, where I I just most recently served. And that's in Italy, and it's focused, it has a Balkan role still from our, you know, um, NATO involvement in the Balkans, and then also all the maritime approaches through the Med Black Sea uh, and the South. So in that more maritime-centric command, that is that is our oldest NATO command too. I mean, I think that's been continually led by a U.S. Navy four-star since NATO's inception. So um, the third, of course, you guys know, is JFC Norfolk in Virginia, which is the newest JFC, and they have focus on ensuring that passage across that the Atlantic, maintaining what NATO calls the transatlantic bridge, and then spreading up into the high north. So the JFCs are not intended to be geographic commands. They trained to be standing joint task forces, which could be deployed in a variety of ways all over NATO territory. But I think from <laughs> what I've seen in the last 70 years, they're pretty much focused in their own geography, as I explained already. Um, Russians invasion in Crimea in 2014, pressed NATO to redouble a lot of their land force presence in the north and, and this all leads into something that i want to really explain in deep in depth here and that's what i think we're getting at is that those land formations were called enhanced forward presence battle groups land battle groups if you will in the baltic states of estonia lithuania and latvia in the south there wasn't really that same effort put in place by nato partly because those nations along that eastern flank particularly poland and romania have pretty robust defense forces and were managing their own national defense plans very closely with NATO. And also, as you guys know, much of that southeastern flank is water, right, in the eastern Med and the Black Sea. So while it's not as easy to show people, like you could show a bunch of battle groups in the Baltic countries, we can and have seen much more NATO naval activity in the southeast Med and Black Sea. That's all dubbed something Recently called vigilance activity, you may in every press release you hear, you'll hear that, and that that vigilance activity is is not it's not an exercise, right? It's it's activity designed, um, you know, to have an effect. We saw that really in the run up to uh, and in the immediate wake of Russia's invasion, and then we've gone into the series of
1: exercises
2: that you guys, excuse me, series of vigilance activities that you guys have talked about
1: this got a lot of attention when it first came out i mean th- this is not well um it's not well understood e- even among among experts right i mean the um y- you know this idea of vigilance right i mean is that a is that a capital v is it a small v <laughs> you, you know what what is the what, what is the point um of you know that activity um putting your u.s hat back on i mean is it is it deterrence? Is it response? Is it a combination of both? Can you talk a little bit more about the, the vigilance activities? Yeah, absolutely. And,
2: and what, what, the way I look at it, and of course, this is all really rooted in um, a former SEC here, General Todd Walters uh, had come up with a concept called the deter and defend in the Euro-Atlantic area. And um, the one thing I think that a lot of a lot of operational forces and when, when these operational commanders specifically in like JFC Naples, when we would operate, we were operating in a lot of stovepipes. I mean, this is, this is 10, if we take our own service 10, 20 years ago when we were kind of all service centric stuff, not joint, not multi-domain, all that stuff. Uh, the vigilance activity was a way to use the command and control structure that NATO has. And that comes into a lot of what you've talked about before how NATO can actually compel another allied to do something. Um, you know, there's not so much op- operational command, right? Opcon or, you know, TACCON. There is those things within the NATO construct, but it, it needs to be a little more nuanced. And that's really the way I would explain vigilance activity. It was things that we were doing um, in the Southeast in particular that had strategic effect or that could send a message. And that we're being, um, where we would lay over a bomber task force and some maritime activity. We'd lay over some land activity and some deep, deep strike activity, right? So you would use these vigilance activities to illustrate um, NATO's uh, ability to, to deter and, if necessary, defend in that area.
0: So we, uh, you know, obviously on this, on this podcast, we f- keep focusing on naval movements but there's a lot going on everywhere in all all spheres. Um, A a lot of the electronic intelligence is going on, the surveillance is going on. Um, Is that a joint, is this joint activity? Are there, is everything being coordinated? Let me put it that way. And I realize that this is ongoing, these are ongoing operations. There are serious classifications going on here, but just to try to understand how these things are coordinated, um, we're doing, we NATO, um, are doing a lot of activity, watching Russian activities everywhere, not just in the Black Sea, not just in the Mediterranean, but this also goes up in the Baltic. And there's been lots and lots and lots of activity up in the Baltic associated with all this as well. And as well, the North Sea and North Cape, all this stuff. Um, is, is this all coordinated very well? Um, and that, you know, collating all this information, this is, this is big stuff I and mean, big data stuff. There's lots of information coming in. How's that working? I
2: think the I really think to answer that question, the best is what I saw in action in the last you know, six months of my time there. So let's say from about this time last year through my departure in the summer of twenty two. Um, we're, you know, when you talk about ISR and you talk about surveillance, of course, we're dealing with national systems, we're dealing with, there are NATO, uh, you know, NATO systems that, that are procured under a NATO funding line to do um, reconnaissance and surveillance, AGS is, is that program. Um, the, there are a lot of assets out there. And just like anything, and, we, and no one no one be able to look at this and say that it's perfect. But what I like to, to continue to remind people is, this is countries doing this in their backyard, right? These are nations, uh, these NATO nations that are providing a lot of our support in these realms with national their with own national assets. Of course, we, we, the US have our own national assets, but these other countries, I mean, these are, you know, this is um, Poland. Uh, you know, they know they know the skies in their country. They know what to look at. They know what to look for. And when you aggregate all of that, 30 nations, um, intelligence uh, distillation of these things and their own what they can bring to the table what they can share et etc you actually get a much I was I was much more impressed in seeing that than I was expecting to be um, particularly when things started looking um, like like they were going toward an invasion of Ukraine
0: so the integration of, of Sweden and <laughs> Finland I, I don't think it's been much of a, a stretch has it I, I I spent some quality time um, up in the Baltic a few years ago, but um, a lot of it was with the Swedes, and they were, you know, is it they they seem to be they're certainly from their attitude, very integrated with NATO. They constantly operated with NATO. Oh, yeah. That entire trip was was all about look at the Russians, this is what the Russians are doing, how aggressive the Russians were. I mean, they were they were in you know they, I know they're a partner nation, but they were, and you know in everything but name seemed to be a NATO member.
2: If you, if you look at every exercise that we, NATO, has done in the last um, I, I, decade, two decades, it always says NATO, NATO nations, the participating nations is NATO nations in Finland and Sweden. I mean, they are, they are as integrated as a nation can be in NATO without having, the uh, you know, the, the, uh, the tab, if you will. Um, and, and, you know, I, if, if I could take a second to talk a little bit about how that, you know, every nation, when I think of NATO force structure, I always look at something, I like, I think of a dresser drawer in your bedroom, right? A stack of six or so drawers. In that top drawer, NATO nations place their highest readiness force, you know, their very high readiness task forces. And then the cascading level of training and integration as the drawers go down. And when something happens in NATO, there's that, that first drawer gets to get opened. And, you know, I always in my head picture these little people inside that drawer going like, Yes, I'm there. I'm going. You know, we signed on and we're going. And then there's other countries sometimes when you rip that door open and they go like, ah, not today, you know, or we have some political constraints that are keeping us from that. And and that is the alliance. That's something that we've been working on for 70 years. And we we all of the policymakers, decision makers and commanders in NATO kind of have grown to understand which countries are going to be the ones that are going to jump at the opportunities when they come. And when you look at our partners, I got to put them in that same drawer, just like you're mentioning with Finland and, and uh, Sweden.
0: So one of the one of the constant problems with international operations, even within NATO, is always uh, interoperability communications. Is everybody right into everything? Are we, on, are we on enough circuits? Um You know, there's there's there are always issues and it's it's always it's been traditionally the number one complaint of other nations when they work with Americans that they don't they don't get rid. You're at Allied Joint Force Command Naples. Um, Is that is that still an ongoing problem? Is it a lot better? Has it gotten better since this invasion started in February? What what is the interoperability communications level going on? What, what I really have to credit to this is,
2: is something called the Neptune or Project Neptune. And you've heard, we continue to hear talk about, we just finished actually in, in October, something called Neptune Strike 22.2. Um, but the Neptune Project goes back to 2020. And it started just like you'd think. It's tabletop. And, and running this whole thing is Strike for NATO right? Isn't that the badass's name you could have uh, for any kind of command? Um, Strike for NATO is NATO's premier maritime battle staff. And they started, Strike for NATO started integrating with, like, they were involved in the 2021 Comp 2X with Harry S. Truman, right? And Mm -hmm. then they came here and were, you know, did Neptune Shield um, just in May uh, with Truman. Um, We just saw Neptune strike culminate, and that was... um, With George H.W. Bush here in October. Those Neptune events are designed to get through that interoperability. And they're not just, they're not an exercise. They're two weeks of high-end activity to integrate that command and control of multiple carrier strike groups, ARGs, amphibious ready groups, AMU. Um, The most recent one, I think it was Neptune Shield 22.1 in June that had 25 nations and partners uh involved in it so um i think you're seeing quite a bit and i, I think all of the that again when you work with different platforms and different nations and different caveats you're going to have your challenges but this was work well done to have us positioned to be where we are today ha- having this started back in 2020
0: I, I have one one quick one and then i'll throw it back to mr cervello uh, public relations so every time, you know, so Neptune strike activity, all right, when it starts, or when these exercises start, and not too many exercises anymore, most of them are activities as you're talking about, uh, there, there's, a, there's a big photo op. In the old days, you know, you might have an exercise it might go on for a week or two or three. And the last thing you did, the graduation thing before everybody said goodbye, was you'd have a big photo ex. Now, last couple of years seems to be the very first thing you do is everybody gets together that big photo X. So Neptune, Neptune strikes, Neptune shield. We get the Harry S Truman. We get the Charles de Gaulle. We get the Cavour from Italy. Um, everybody gets together, gets, get, get, gets their pictures taken. What's the importance of public relations in, in, in trying to transmit how try, transmit NATO's capability, not just to, uh, to everybody, to the Russians, to the Chinese, to the populations of all, all those NATO countries. What's the importance of that? Well, it, I think it's absolutely critical. In fact, it's, I think it's probably
2: one, it, it's more important uh, or as important than showing up. But back to your question about photo ops, and, and I, I, um, I'm intimately involved, I've been intimately involved for 20 plus years in the photo op. And, and one of the things I think uh, that's different now than maybe some of the traditional um, carrier strike group operations that we might see where they operate physically together is the dispersed nature of operations these days? So I think what ends up happening is you take the photo when you've got everybody together, and then they may all go over the horizon to do their job, and it's just a little less um, um, imperial than it was uh, maybe uh, in in other days where you could you would be steaming together in formation for the entire time. But back to your thing, I- I'm seeing some fantastic stuff. First, I'm super honored to have been able to. Sp- be a spokesman for NATO because I, I, I learned so much um, thinking I was pretty good in my trade. Other countries are as good or better than us in a lot of things. And one of the things that I'm, I'm noticing, I'll, I'll share with you guys later. And if you want to try and play, uh, play on it at a future date is the embeds that uh, NATO is doing. They're embedding a bunch of influencers and bloggers, which we've, you know, we, we came into uh, around 2009, 10 time. We started doing this as well. When blogs and stuff were coming up. It was really important to put some of these people. They, the, this one woman that I just saw uh, embarked on one of the one of the ships is a is a pacifist and a mountain trekking kind of person. It was like really, it's just a huge follower uh, followership, and she did some great work. So I think that using your communication on so many different levels um, and being sure our narrative leads our operations is a is a real real vital step in anything going forward with nato or any of our individual nations
1: and probably in a more integrated and practice fashion than at least in the united states we do on a regular basis no
2: yeah i mean I, I, I mean some 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 nations are not not that keen on getting out there and and talking and some nations national structures um, keep that very, very well structured and very that that approval process is very vertical. Um, other nations are wide open. I mean, so you see thir- we're talking 30 countries, right? And every one of them has behind them an entire national culture, entire political culture. And it, it's really something um, I found it to be super frustrating at times. But I also I think overall uh, found it to be really um, something that was a great place for me to end my career as a communicator.
1: Well, I'll ask you one last question on this topic, and then I want to bridge to to something else before we lose you. Um, How, I I guess, how serious a threat are the Russian maritime forces, um, recognizing that you left almost uh, four and a half, five months ago? I mean, how once this latest incident with Ukraine uh, kicked up? Um, how worried were the bosses there in Naples about um, having to deal with uh, maritime issues from the Russians, whether it's in the Black Sea or elsewhere? You know, I think the
2: the best the best way to address that is you know we're dealing with the the commander of Allied Joint Force Command JFC Naples, the NATO commander in, in Italy, is also the four star commander in charge of U.S. naval forces in Europe and Africa, where we've been for for quite a, a while. I think we know. Um, whether it's in the North or down in the Med and in the approaches, and even in the Black Sea, um, we have a pretty good handle on, on what Russia's maritime picture looks like. And that picture only gets sharper when we fold in our, our, fr- our partners uh, and our allies. Um, you know, right, just to kind of close with this, is on, in February of 2022, Um, the commander at JFC Naples wanted to hold a Black Sea Maritime Forum in Bucharest, Romania. So inside, you know, the the Black Sea. Um, So all the nations, the Black Sea nations, of of course, not Russia, went to this um, event. And it was this forum built on a forum that's been had a lot of success called the, the Baltic Sea Maritime Forum. And that's what they wanted to model it on. I mean, that was on the 23rd of February, a bunch of Senior four-star generals and admirals coming together to talk about how those nations um, in the Black Sea would address a manner of threats, you know, happened on the eve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So, I mean, having those people at the table, uh, our allies and partners at the table when we come into those situations um, and when we run up against uh, Russian maritime forces, is exactly the way we're going to be successful uh, meeting those threats.
1: Thank you very much uh, for, for that. I think, I mean, the, the entire explanation um, and then the specifics that you were able to get into is is very helpful and uh, look forward to having you back on um, to, you know, talk more a, as we see things unfold with, with NATO. Um, I, I do want to take the last couple minutes that we have together. We mentioned at the top um, the the friendship and uh, relationship that the three of us have had over our collective careers um, and kind of related to that and and also related to some of the things that you mentioned about uh, the use of digital media and bloggers. Um, Earlier this week, we found out that uh, a longtime friend uh, and colleague of all three of ours, uh, Raymond Pritchett, um, widely known online as Galran uh, had passed away. Um, and, um, I wanted to use the last couple minutes that we have together to, um, remember Raymond and talk a little bit about, um, the value that he and others almost uh, a decade and a half ago had the influence they had on on our careers and 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 our profession. Um so uh if you'll indulge me uh, uh Jason I, I know you you and I were uh, both mid-career navy public affairs officers when we ran into Galron uh digitally um and he was you know he was known to push the limits of what was the norm back then. I mean, we we were very used to dealing with colleagues like Chris Cavis and and others who while um while forceful and 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 you know um I guess thoughtful in making the Navy work in telling its story, we had gotten pretty used to the traditional media approach. And then folks like Galron and Commander Salamander and you know many others came on the scene and it caused all of us to change the way we do business and and in many cases it's it's akin to kind of what we're seeing now and how we deal with misinformation and disinformation that this was kind of the I guess the training wheels to that just to be able to deal with digital media and social media and and engage in re- real time with these folks so. Um, I, you know, this is a huge loss, I guess, for for me personally. And uh, you know, I, I'm very thankful to to Raymond and for what he taught me and what he forced me to do to make me a, a better communicator. Um, thoughts on your experiences with uh, with Raymond and you, you know, remembering that time as it kind of changed the way we in the Navy and really in DoD communicated.
2: I was very sorry to hear that if his passing and my thoughts and prayers are with his family um as they kind of go through this the far too far too soon for a guy like him the thing about gauran um was that i don't think the navy and and you and i know this too chris i don't think the navy was ready to step in to kind of this third rail of social media and online um online opinions that weren't vetted by some editorial staff. But I think, and, and this is not, I mean, other than uh, Chris, who is exacting in his editorial approach to to, story, to, to stories, uh, Gauron did the, the mill blogger, but checked his sources, was always one of those guys that never would let himself be wrong. And I think that that part of dealing with him made it easy for the Navy as an institution to, for guys maybe like you and I we are going to like, we got to deal with this guy. He's going to take a Cavus story, Beron, and he's going to spin it right back at us with a whole nother layer of context that maybe Cavis can't get into. Um, but yeah, that, that piece was, when I think back, that was in 2009, 10, again, where we were just stepping into this. And now to think about um, not engaging someone like him, um, I, I couldn't imagine it, but uh, I'm very sorry to hear of his passing.
0: Yeah, likewise. I mean, he, um, uh, he again, he, he was not a naval person at all. He was an IT guy. He was a very sharp IT guy. He's was a young guy. I mean, he, he just died at age 47. Um, and for a long time, he was just known as Galran. He had, had, had his website, Information Dissemination, <laughs> and wrote as Galran, and had a lot of people, you know, trying to figure out who is this guy and who is this guy. After a while, I mean, I I knew who he was because we'd be talking. He, he got a hold of me, and then we just we we started a relationship that way. But the Navy couldn't figure out who he was for for, for quite a while. There were a lot of guesses. Um, most people thought he was an 06. He was a, he was a captain. He'd been <laughs> around for a while. Um, that's not a joke. Yeah. And, um. I was kind of smile. I I never I didn't out him to anybody else. Um. But I'd be smiling at this like seriously. You really think that? um he was he was that smart and and he and he spoke his mind and part of the part of the thing was he was he wasn't tainted by any of the the you know the history and and, and relationships that most all of us have with the service and with history and everything else he was a, he lived he was from living upstate new york um and uh he just was outside the, the washington scene and had a really unique view and was very yeah, perspective, yeah. but, but, but he was he was very he was responsible, um, but you know, you, you talk about that, you know, it, it did for a while there, there was kind of a one-two punch going on. I remember I wrote a two-part, big two-part uh, thing in defense news called uh, Why Nobody Believes the Navy. <laughs> Sorry, children, is just about as good today as it was back then. <laughs> um, great big thing, full of all kinds of chock full of stuff. And, uh, Gallran, you know, picked right up on that. I came in one morning and I did, I actually wouldn't look at his sites. I, 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 don't look at the bloggers, but, um, Phil Ewing, who worked for Navy times at the time was loved that stuff. And he, he, he would come into work every morning and hit, hit up the bloggers. And I, I would come in a little later and he, they're talking about your cabas. what he is So Gal, Galran had a great big, you know, use that classic photo of the Iowa, the battleship, Iowa, firing a nine gun broadside. Um, to go, you know, Cavus takes aim at the Navy, and there was this sort of, uh, you know, uh, it, it 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 looked it looked like there was collusion going on. There absolutely was not, but um, yeah, we he he he'd riff off that and uh, and and take it further, like you said. I had yeah. a, I, I got to know him a little bit. Um, we did we did an embar three days uh, on board the USS Freedom, first yeah. combat ship um, coming out of the Great Lakes, and. You know none of those things where the navy offered embarks to lots of reporters and nobody took them up on it i can't can't ever figure this out but Galbraith and i were the only ones who did um, it was a great time we roomed together um, really got to know each other i actually talked him into um, outing himself at that point and it was uh, you know he he'd he made his rep the Na- enough people in the navy were starting to get hold of him people knew who he was it's like, go ahead and just, you know, come clean. You can still be Galran. So I took a picture of him on, on the top side on the ship. So he was clearly on a Navy ship. And uh, he, he put that on, on information dissemination. Hi, my name is right. uh, Raymond Pritchett. And, um, you know, but I, I like the Navy. I'm going to still be Galran. And in and, uh, and my, my view, that gave him even more great credibility. And it was easier for the Navy to deal with him, um, I thought, you guys on the inside but um i thought it gave him a lot of credibility uh, it, uh, i mean it, it's it's like you know uh, you know bob uh, uh, bob dylan is uh is, sorry it's not his name his name is zero but uh, we know that but he's still bob dylan it doesn't have to change um i just dated myself there didn't I? um no way <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> no but he was i mean he was a great guy i think he was in awe of the influence that he had um he was in, he, he really was respectful of a lot of things the navy gave him great stuff great access he, he was invited to war games um he had a, he really had a great mind i mean that's how he got into it really was was war gaming i think harpoon it was a big harpoon for yeah anyway you know
1: we we talk about how slow the the navy is to to change and you know there were a lot of People sharing their early stories of Galron and uh, Commander Salamander and you know Boston Maggie and some of these names that we've known now for a decade, and you, you, you know how new and and different it was. But I, I have to say I, I was really proud of once um, once we started to engage with these types of folks the Navy was pretty quick to normalize what they did. I mean, I mean, it, you know, it it was awkward at first, but, you know, once we started doing embarks, once we started going on their podcasts and, you you know, running um, uh, their version of op-eds in their blogs in the, in the traditional clips right next to New York times stories or Chris Cavis stories um, you you know, the, the Navy was kind of on the forefront of that. And so, um, I, I guess as I look again, I, I equated in my mind to what we're dealing now with disinformation and misinformation, and how we have to change the way we think. We can do this. We we can think outside of the box, and uh, y- you know the way we adopted digital in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, I, I think is the path uh, for for today. Absolutely agree with that.
0: All right, well, folks, we've been uh, we've been talking with uh, Captain USN RET. By, as of a day, uh, Jason Salata, just out just off a really fantastic career as a public relations officer in the United States Navy. I had a lot of experience with Jason, one of the most professional and helpful and darn darn just darn nice guys to be around, uh, folks that I really ever dealt with. And I, I want to publicly thank Jason for all the help he's given me over the years. it's it's It was major stuff. It pays off even today, still pays off. And I just want to thank you, Jason, for your career. Thank you very much.
2: Every minute's been a pleasure, Chris. And Chris, uh, I really appreciate being on here. I'd love to come again.
0: Hope so. Thanks. Now
1: is this. Now is
0: it. All right, time for Squawk Box. Mr. Cervello is bullish on synthetic training.
1: Thanks, Chris. This week in Orlando, I attended the annual Interservice Industry Training Simulation and Education Conference. ITSEC, as it's commonly called, is the world's largest modeling, simulation, and training event. I've been going to the conference on and off for the last decade and walked away again this year, wowed and amazed by the technology and know-how brought together in Orlando. What particularly grabbed my attention was the increase in connectivity and reality achieved across multiple training stations. Students of all ages and experience have the ability to conduct everything from individual qualifications to organizational and service-wide blended live-fire interactions. It is possible in ways not previously imagined to have a ship, pierside participate in exercises or live training scenarios with other assets spread across the globe. Now, because we should never rest on our laurels, the next step in the process is twofold. First, we need to continue to integrate this technology across the Navy to drive down basic training steaming days in favor of using underway time for higher level tactical training or CO free play. Second, as DOD looks to bring more sophisticated joint warfighting networks online, we need to have a standard way to take advantage of this great training and simulation technology by creating a joint synthetic training network. The better allows any unit in any service to connect with any other unit in any other service in order to train and operate together. Imagine doing JTFX level coordination and training from your ship's console or wing simulator bay. How much better would the real world training be if much of the rust and joint awkwardness was dusted off ahead of time? Look, I'm normally prone to finding problems or complaining when I attend these types of shows. However, this week I walked away energized and motivated. Industry, OSD, Congress, and the services need to continue to fund this type of technology. It is clearly having an impact. And with their combined commitment, even better things are possible in the not-too-distant future.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Chris. And that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be
1: sure to follow us at Kavis Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify.
0: I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Kavis. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye.